Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 46. As we continue our study in the book of Isaiah, we'll be looking at 46 in its entirety today. And we'll be looking at a familiar topic as we continue to look at Isaiah's treatment on the topic of idolatry. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for self Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that it would never get old to us. We pray that we would never look at it and say, oh yeah, I already know that. Because we demonstrate daily that we don't know the things that we would claim to know because we don't act on those things. And so, Lord, we pray that instead you would change our hearts as we come to your holy word, your inerrant word, the only thing that we have to inform us and instruct us concerning our faith and our practice, that you would change us from within. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as I read through this text this week, it reminded me of baseball a little bit because if you watch a spring training game or like watch the warm-ups for spring training sometimes i watch this kind of stuff and you see these major league baseball players and what are they doing as they begin their warm-ups they're just throwing the ball to each other doing simple drills like throwing ground balls to each other and then one of the coaches will take a bat and he will bat some balls to some of the infielders and another one will bat some to the outfielders and they will just shag some fly balls and that sort of thing. And you can hear the coaches talking to the players about how they need to position their body in front of a ground ball and how they need to do their back foot when they swing or whatever, just simple things that you might also hear on a high school team or on a t-ball team. If you went and watched five and six-year-olds practice in t-ball, you'd hear pretty much the same sorts of things. Now, the products of those two warm-ups is completely different, of course. One looks like many years of training combined with athletic gifts, making something that you know only a really small percentage of people can do, while the other kind of looks like you know a little circus time, with the main goal of just having fun, with a few fundamentals mixed in there, right? Two completely different goals, but basically teaching those same fundamentals over and over again. Those major league baseball players are good because they were really good at those fundamentals. Well, Isaiah, we've been looking at this theme of idolatry for a while now. And if you notice in your Bibles, you'll see a heading over today's text that suggests that Isaiah 46 is also about idolatry. Because it is. So why do you think Isaiah spends so much time on this subject? Shouldn't we get it by now? Shouldn't the people of Judah and the people that would read this in many centuries that would follow, shouldn't they get it by now? Shouldn't the first two commandments that were handed down to Moses have been enough? Not to commit idolatry, not to have false images. When Moses came down, shouldn't the people have just said, you know what, that's right, I get that and I'll stop. That's not enough, because they didn't, and they haven't. It's not. It's the same reason that Major League Baseball shortstops still take ground ball practice. Because in the history of Major League Baseball, not a single shortstop has ever gone an entire season, much less a career, without making an error. They still do it. They haven't reached perfection yet. They still commit errors, even the best. And these are like the best. What does that make us? On spiritual matters, how much more likely are we, who are idolaters by nature or were, continue to struggle with this sin? 
Isaiah knew his people. He knew that they needed this continual teaching. God knows it as well, of course. That's why he gave it to his prophet to give to us. And so with each chapter, we get a bit more insight as to what's going on here. A bit more instruction, a bit more practical application. And so a lot of what we're going to be looking at today is a lot of practical application as we study this topic. Because again, we don't have idols in here, thankfully, or in our homes that, that we're like looking at and saying, that's the thing that I worship. No, we don't do that anymore, really. We have the idols that are in our heart. Then we can't necessarily see them. And it's God's plan to see us through to completion. And what that means is that when he does that, and when we reach that completed point, we will indeed be sanctified. It will be done. We will be holy in him. But until that time, he's still working on us. We're still committing those errors. We're still sinning. And so as we study this passage, we're going to break it up into two main ideas. The gods that we carry, and then lastly, the God who carries us. And so with that, let's look together at Isaiah 46. We'll be looking at it in its entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 46, starting at verse 1. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been borne by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and the gray hairs, I, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse, and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god, and they fall down and worship They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, in the ancient time things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and will bring it to pass. I have purposed and will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So some different things going on in this text. For us to understand some of the imagery in the text today, we need to understand a bit of cultural and religious history from the city of Babylon itself. And really the Babylonian Empire and some of its religious ideas. Bel and Nebo, the two gods mentioned in verse 1, their more common names for them in this time would have been Marduk 
and Nabu, which is closer to Nebo, but Bel and Marduk are pretty far apart. Marduk was basically their main god, not, not their creator god necessarily, but kind of the main one that they worshipped, and Nabu was one of Marduk's sons. Marduk was the god of the city of Babylon. Each of the Babylonian cities had a different god associated with it. And Nabu watched over another city called Borsippa. And Nabu was the god of writing, among other things. And so each year, what they would do is they would load Nabu up onto a cart, and they would take a trip to Babylon with him. And, and what Nabu's purpose to going to Babylon was is to be with his father in order to plan out the whole year. Because what they would say that Nabu was doing every new year was uh, deciding the fate of man. And there was this big new year celebration associated with carting these two gods through the middle of the city. And he got to the city. So Nabu, again, Nabu was just carved out of this stump and he would have to be carried by animals to Babylon because, you know, he didn't have legs or wasn't alive, just a dead tree. And so when he got to the city, his father's stump would join him on a cart and they would be carted up to the temple of this other god and the people would rejoice together that this was going on. The people of Israel would have known about this probably just a little bit because of some of the cultural interactions that they had had, particularly leading up to the Assyrian domination of both of those civilizations. But in another 150 years, when it was Babylon's turn to start taking over places, the people would have definitely become familiar with this ceremony. They would have saw it firsthand. They probably, some of them would have been forced to be a part of it. Consider this then. The gods of Babylon being carried wherever they need to go. Right? Isaiah prefaced this in the previous chapter. Todd read for that for us. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 45. Assemble yourselves and come draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. So as we study today, keep this ceremony in mind. I think it's, again, helpful for us to understand the historical context. Consider also, then, the gods that you have to support and that you have to carry around with you as well. That brings us to the first point, the gods that we carry. Look again at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 46. Bel bows down and Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So again, remember the context. Cyrus, we've named a few chapters ago, has been named as God's chosen deliverer of the people of God from Babylonian exile, which is not supposed to happen for another 150 years or so. And so the picture here is the gods of the Babylonians being carried away as Cyrus goes into the city of Babylon. Rather than being carted to the temple to decide the fates of man on the New Year celebration, they're being carried out of town to be with the Persian gods. And notice Isaiah's suggestion here that when they do this, they bow down or they, they stoop. 
the picture, it almost reminds me, is that it almost makes me think that as the beasts bear this burden, it says they cannot save the burden. It almost makes me think that something's happening, that the picture that Isaiah is trying to paint is that something happens and the cart just kind of topples over and these two gods just kind of fall off and they stoop low. That may be one way to look at it. Another way that commentators have looked at it is that these are the Babylonians actually carting their gods out of the city before the Persian attack and there's in this kind of futile attempt to get their gods out of there. History teaches us, however, that Cyrus actually paid homage to both Marduk and Nebo and asked for their blessing on his conquering one of their cities and then carted those gods off to the Persian, one of the Persian capitals to kind of add them to their pantheon. And so we don't, this isn't necessarily a prediction of something that's going to happen in the future. Rather, Isaiah is using this as a metaphor for us to understand about these gods. What are these gods? Well, these gods are gods that you carry. This is on purpose. It builds from this idea of 45 verse 20. These powerless gods have to be carried about and they are absolutely powerless to save. They sat there just like any other piece of wood and watched the whole thing happen. They didn't actually watch anything, you know, because they don't have eyes. They can't see. In my many years of ministry, I've talked a lot about idolatry, about my own idols, about the idols that people have and helping them see that in their own lives, how we serve these idols, why we serve these idols. Because we don't have a Marduk and a Nebo that we have to carry around. Probably not, anyway. Uh, probably not. But we do have idols that we carry around. But a lot of times when we read stuff like this, it's hard for us to kind of imagine. Because this isn't normal in our society today. Now, there is a lot of evidence. If you read, it's interesting to read about, I read quite a bit about some of this, the comeback of actual, like, concrete paganism, where people are actually do carve totems or some other kind of carved image or paint a picture or something, and they actually worship that thing as their god. That is kind of making a comeback. We, it's funny because when we, a little tangent here, but it's funny because when we think of something like a totem or a carved image, that bothers us a lot. But when maybe when one of our like Roman Catholic friends has a little medallion that they rub every once in a while for good luck, that doesn't bother us nearly as much. Or, you know, when someone bows before a cross at the front of the church, as if bowing there or bowing in the back room have any difference at all. It's funny the way that we have slowly let these kind of things seep into our own lives. But we know that these things aren't the real issue. Physical, actual idols in front of us. It's not the idols that we can see that draw us away from God any more than it was these pieces of wood in Babylon. It's the ones that are in our hearts that are the real danger. Marduk and Nebo weren't real, of course. Those pieces of wood were real. Those carved images were just representations of the hearts of the people of Babylon and many others before them and after them that are defiant against the one true God of the universe. In conversations over the years, in my study of Scripture, 
I can basically summarize all of these idols into basically two groups. They're doing one of two things, the idols that we create for ourselves. It can be, it can take any kind of form. You know, I shared with you several weeks ago about my idol of everything being ordered and structured. That takes one form, but in, in reality, there's just one or two things that these idols are essentially doing. The first one will convince us that we have to be better than we are in order to gain a reward. We have to be better. If I can just be better than I am, I can gain this reward, whatever that reward is. We typically make that up too. Or we might even say that reward is heaven or whatever it is. We might make it spiritual. And the second time, or the second type of reward is different, or the second type of idol is different. It's kind of the opposite. It convinces us that it's okay to be as bad as we want in order to gain that reward. And so you kind of have these extremes, right? You have one, I have to be better. One, I have to reject those good things. The first type of idol that people worship, that first type, we have to be better, puts us on quests, right? And we all are familiar with these quests. And these doing these things isn't aren't bad things, right? The quest to be perfect parents. We know that perfect parents doesn't exist, but we all want to be good parents. But the quest to be perfect parents, or the quest to be a perfect spouse, or to be perfect Christians. And we definitely define what that means. And it, cause it always comes with a list. Every single time. Do these good things. Do these good things. Stop doing these bad things. And you can finally be free. This is the mantra of that type of God. This God gives you freedom also to look down at others because they are worse than you. Now that's one type. That's not really the one that I resonate with. I resonate with more of the second type. And that puts us on a quest to create morality from our immorality. And a list of, this is a list of a more rebellious kind of sort. Do these bad things, stop doing these good things, then you can finally be free. This God gives us the freedom to look down on others because they think that they're better than us. Or we think that they think we're better than us. This God is seemingly worse than the first one, right? Because it's bad things versus good things. But we have to understand, especially our Bible Belt ears have to hear this. These are equally idolatrous at the same time. They're both bad. Neither one of them are the gospel. Neither of these represent the true God of the Bible, but only the parts that we like. We take the parts that we like, we get rid of the ones that we don't, we create a God in our own image. Like Marduk, like Nebo, these gods have to be carried with us wherever we go. I have to carry them around. I have to make sure that others can see them, or at least see me acting them out, right? These are idols of the heart. We can do a great job of concealing them. We might even pretend that they're good things when they're not. So understand, Christians, understand this. All of us serve one of these gods. And a lot of times what ends up happening in our lives as believers, and I've had this conversation with people, is what ends up happening is we kind of realize about ourselves, maybe I'm being a little bit legalistic, right? And so then we swing the other way, 
and we start being a little bit more rebellious. And then we realize that about ourselves. And then we swing the other way and we start worshiping this other God that, again, calls us to that legality or that legalism. And I found in my own life that I'll switch to one in response to trying to feed the other. And it's a constant battle. And understand this, brothers and sisters in Christ. The one true God of the Bible does not tolerate this from us. His first commandment to us is what? You shall have no other gods before me. There's no room for these gods in our lives. And so then what do we do? That's where we're at. We have to understand ourselves as idolaters first. And then second, we have to answer the question, now what? And this is the part where, this is where we struggle. Because we want to list again. Or we want to, I don't like that, again. Either way, we tend to go one way or the other here. And so what do we do? And that brings us to the second point. The God who carries us. First, we have to understand the futility, the impotence of our own God that we make. He doesn't have power. He doesn't have any ability at all. Verses 5 through 7. To whom will you liken me? And make me equal and compare me that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith. He makes it into a God. They fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. I mean, imagine this. This is God saying these words right through the prophet and God seeing these Watching, knowing, seeing Marduk and Nebo being carted through the streets and people worshiping that. And then, and then look at what he's saying here. They set it in its place and it stands there. It can't move. If one cries to it, it doesn't answer or save him from his trouble. Who are you going to compare me to? God says. He answers with his own question because he knows that we are, we have all these other gods that we worship. We craft this God for ourselves. We set it in place. It sits there. It's powerless. We cry out to it. We cry out things with these gods that we make. But I did all of these good things, right? I did all these good things. And it has no answer for us because it can't talk to us at all. The whole time this drama plays out, by the way, this whole time that we've crafted this thing and said, this is the perfect thing, this is the thing I have to be, this is the thing I have to attain to, the whole time this is happening, we are being carried along by a loving God. The whole time. Verses 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, whom have been born by me from before your birth, Carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. Have made. I will bear. I will carry. I will save. Notice the contrast here. God wasn't made. God wasn't born. He wasn't carried. He doesn't need our help. He does these things for us, however, all of them. And all the while, 
we are sitting here crafting our own gods. The God of the Bible not only carries his people, but from the beginning of time, he had a plan for those people. And the difference between his plans and Nebo's plans are obvious, of course. Nebo can't even make plans because it's just a piece of wood. But the God of the Bible has a plan to have a people for himself and to come and save those people himself. And he did that. He did the thing that he said he was going to do. He's doing the things he said he was going to do. When Jesus came, and understand this too. Notice what God says. I have made, not he hasn't been made. I have, I will bear, he hasn't been born. But what happened when Jesus came? He was born. He was carried by his mother. He became man. He walked among us. He made himself like one of us. He made himself like one of those things that has to be carried and has to be born. And then he came, and not only that, he gave himself as a perfect ransom. One that never created an idol. Never. The only man to ever not create an idol, our Lord Jesus Christ, was never an idolater. Yet, he gave himself as a ransom for idolatrous people. And only idolatrous people. He gave his life, he died, so that you and I could live. He was risen from the grave so that you and I could have hope for eternal life. Not just the misery of this life. Imagine if this was the end. We were dead in our trespasses. We were who were dead as those stumps that were being carried around. He made us alive together with Christ Jesus our Lord. And by belief in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we are able to be saved to this eternal life. To be called sons and daughters of God. And because these are God's plans, because Jesus is not in a grave somewhere, but he's right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of his children, because the Father and Son sent out the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of this eternal hope that we have in him, we know these promises are going to come true. Absolutely, they're going to come true. In fact, there's no way that they can't. They gave the Holy Spirit as a guarantee for those promises to not come true would mean that the Holy Spirit would have to like die. The third person of the Trinity, very God, a very God, would have to die. And that's not going to happen. So we know his promises are going to come true. The people of Isaiah's day were told that other promises that were going to happen. Look at verses 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose. He has a purpose for his people for all eternity. We're evidence of that. But he has purpose for his people right then and there or 150 years from there. Calling a bird of prey from the east. Talking about Cyrus again. A man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. He actually did that thing. Cyrus came. He saved the people of God through his conquest. 
through reasons that perfectly pleased the Lord, he chose to use a pagan to carry out his purposes. It's not as if Cyrus, once he realizes the things that he's done, turns and worships the one true God as a result of being God's tool. In fact, everything that we have about this, he actually bows down to the Babylonian gods when he enters into their temple and makes sure he pays his respect. Yet it was the purposes of God, of the Lord to do this. How much more then, brothers and sisters in Christ, will he carry out the purposes that were brought about by the coming of his only begotten son? And he doesn't intend to stop those purposes, brothers and sisters in Christ, because of our daily idolatry. He doesn't look at our idolatry and say, you know what? Maybe I should rethink my eternal plan because these people are garbage. He doesn't rethink his plan. He doesn't do that. Look at verses 12 and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. It's almost like he's talking right to us. You who are far from righteousness. This is what he's going to do for us. Verse 13. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel is my glory. It's incredible. He addresses the people then with this promise, just like he addresses the people today as those who are stubborn of heart, who are far from righteousness. He intends to save us. He takes our stubborn hearts and our unrighteousness so that he took those upon himself so that we might become the very righteousness of God. And notice in verse 13, there's no small print there. My Bible doesn't have any. Yours doesn't either. This this thing happens. He comes and he saves us. He brings his righteousness near to us, independent of our ability to follow commandment one perfectly. Completely independent of my ability to not make idols for myself, which is zero. He is going to save me 100% every single time. Unlike the false gods that we worship, the true God is a God of mercy and grace. The gods that we make for ourselves are taskmasters. Yet for those who worship any other type of God, what does God do for us? He delivers us. Now understand, the God that we worship also is a God who loves his law. And he requires that his people follow it. Absolutely. But unlike the gods we worship, both of those things, he forgives us, he loves us even though we're stubborn, even though we're idolatrous, and he requires of us, he requires of us holiness, he requires of us goodness. Unlike the gods that we worship, which are one or the other thing, right? One thing cast out the other thing, this thing cast out that thing, the God that we worship is both of those things. He's the God who commands his people to live in accordance with his word, but he's a God that forgives them when they don't. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. And I want you to see this. This isn't me just making this up because it feels good. This is what he writes to us. 1 John chapter 1. Keeping in mind what I just said, he's a God that grants us mercy, but he's a God that requires us to do the things that he's told us to do. First John chapter one, verse five. I love this. 
Let me encourage you, turn to this page and read these things anytime you don't believe what I just said is true. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim it to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. He's calling us to walk in light. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with the one who with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. He wants us to walk in the light, right? If we say we have no sin, however, if we say, well, I never walk in the darkness. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So what is he's calling us to walk in light rather than darkness. But now he's saying you can't do that. If you say that, you're going to deceive yourself. Rather, verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What's the expectation for the life of the believer? Perfection? No, we can't do that. Does he require us to be holy? Does he require us to be good and upright and righteous now that we are in Christ? Absolutely. Does he know that we're not going to be? Yes. So what then does he call us to do? Repent. And then what happens? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because I sin today, because I sin later today after I leave the worship service, does his plan all of a sudden for my life just kind of unravel? Does he say, well, you know, Mike, I had a plan for you from the foundations of the earth, but you started worshiping that idol again, and now those plans are now gone. I have changed my mind on you. Thankfully, we worship a God who does not change. His plans are not thwarted, even by my idolatry. Isn't that wonderful? A believer is called to obedience, but a believer is also called to repentance. A believer should be doing both things. And you've heard me say this because the Bible teaches it. The marks of a believer are obedience and repentance. Absolutely. Because a life, the life of an imperfect person, which that's all of us, requires both. False gods allow for neither. One, not seeing a need for repentance. The God that, that, that tells me that I'm better than everybody else, he also tells me I don't need to repent because obviously I'm better than everyone else. If there was a stack, I'm already at the top. The other God doesn't see a need for obedience. You don't need to do those things. Only goody-goodies do those things. Both of those gods need to be carried, by the way. And carrying them for too long will make you absolutely weary. Cast them aside. Take upon yourself Jesus Christ. Instead, bow before the one who is carrying you even while you worship at the feet of idols. Bow before Jesus who even while you were yet sinners died for you. That's for believers. If you're an unbeliever here, understand the calling is the same. You worship something. Absolutely you do. 
You worship at the feet of one of these two gods. You think you're better than everybody else, or you think that by being bad, you can actually be better than everyone else. Either way, you're convinced. Rather, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And let me encourage you, this is an aside, let me encourage you to talk with people about these things. These are the kinds of conversations that give us power in Christ, that empower us, that sharpen one another in Christ. Many times, unfortunately, we are afraid to admit our frailty again because we worship these gods that punish us when we admit to frailty. We worship these gods that punish us when we say, you know what, I'm not that good. We don't. We don't. Don't worship those gods. Instead, worship at the feet of one who accepts you as you are among people who accept you as you are. Admit our frailty to one another that we can have this kind of fellowship with one another. Trust other believers with these things. Talk about the idols that we worship together. Name them. Expose them for what they are. They're false. And instead, claim the truth and power and glory of the one true God of the Bible. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, cast your idols away. Instead, cast your burdens at the feet of Jesus Christ, who is able to carry them. He's already doing so anyway. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. Rest in him. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we pray that you help us because these idols aren't as simple as a couple of stumps being carted through the city. They're idols that we hide in our heart. And so, Lord, we pray that you would expose them, that you would topple them and break them for the false gods that they are, and that we might cling to you, the one true God, our only hope for salvation, the only name under heaven by which men and women might be saved. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray in this holy name. Amen.